Section 26 of Journal of a Residence on a Georgian Plantation, 1838-1839. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Journal of a Residence on a Georgian Plantation, 1838-1839 by francis ann kimball section twenty six and appendix this was the last letter i wrote from the plantation and i never returned there nor ever saw again any of the poor people among whom i lived during this winter but jack once under sad circumstances the poor lad's health failed so completely that his owners humanely brought him to the north to try what benefit he might derive from the change. But this was before the passing of the Fugitive Slave Bill, when, touching the soil of the northern states, a slave became free. And such was the apprehension felt lest Jack should be enlightened as to this fact by some philanthropic abolitionist, that he was kept shut up in a high upper room of a large empty house, where even I was not allowed to visit him. I heard at length of his being in Philadelphia and upon my distinct statement that I considered freeing their slaves the business of the Messrs. Blank themselves, and not mine, I was at length permitted to see him. Poor fellow! Coming to the North did not prove to him the delight his eager desire had so often anticipated from it. Nor under such circumstances is it perhaps much to be wondered at that he benefited but little by the change. He died not long after. I once heard a conversation between Mr. Blank and Mr. Blank, the two overseers of the plantation on which I was living, upon the question of taking slaves, servants, necessary attendants, into the northern states. Mr. Blank urged the danger of their being got hold of, i.e., set free by the abolitionists, to which Mr. Blank very pertinently replied, "'Oh, stuff and nonsense!' I'd take care when my wife goes north with the children to send Lucy with her. Her children are down here, and I defy all the abolitionists in creation to get her to stay north. Mr. Blank was an extremely wise man. Appendix I wrote the following letter after reading several leading articles in the Times newspaper at the time of the great sensation occasioned by Mrs. Beecher Stowe's novel of Uncle Tom's Cabin and after the anti-slavery protest which that book induced the women of england to address to those of america on the subject of the condition of the slaves in the southern states my dear e i have read the articles in the times to which you refer on the subject of the inaccuracy of mrs beecher stowe's book as a picture of slavery in america and have ascertained who they were written by having done so i do not think it worth while to send my letter for insertion because, as that is the tone deliberately taken upon the subject by that paper, my counterstatement would not, I imagine, be admitted into its columns. I enclose it to you, as I should like you to see how far from true, according to my experience, the statements of the Times correspondent are. It is impossible, of course, to know why it erects itself into an advocate for slavery and the most charitable conjecture I can form upon the subject is that the Stafford House demonstration may have been thought likely to wound the sensitive national views of America upon this subject. 
and the statement put forward by the times contradicting mrs stowe's picture may be intended to soothe their irritation at the philanthropic zeal of our lady abolitionists believe me dear e yours always truly f a k letter to the editor of the times sir as it is not to be supposed that you consciously afford the support of your great influence to misstatements i request your attention to some remarks i wish to make on an article on a book called uncle tom's cabin as it is contained in your paper of the eleventh in treating mrs harriet beecher stowe's work as an exaggerated picture of the evils of slavery i beg to assure you that you do her serious injustice of the merits of her book as a work of art i have no desire to speak to its power as a most interesting and pathetic story all england and america can bear witness but of its truth and moderation as a representation of the slave system in the united states i can testify with the experience of an eye-witness having been a resident in the southern states and had opportunities of observation such as no one who has not lived on a slave estate can have it is very true that in reviving the altogether exploded fashion of making the hero of her novel the perfect monster that the world ne'er saw mrs stowe has laid herself open to fair criticism and must expect to meet with it from the very opposite taste of the present day but the ideal excellence of her principal character is no argument at all against the general accuracy of her statements with regard to the evils of slavery everything else in her book is not only possible but probable and not only probable but a very faithful representation of the existing facts faithful and not as you accuse it of being exaggerated for with the exception of the horrible catastrophe the flogging to death of poor tom she has portrayed none of the most revolting instances of crime produced by the slave system with which she might have darkened her picture without detracting from its perfect truth even with respect to the incident of tom's death it must not be said that if such an event is possible it is hardly probable for this is unfortunately not true it is not true that the value of the slave as property infallibly protects his life from the passions of his master it is no new thing for a man's passions to blind him to his most obvious and immediate temporal interests as well as to his higher and everlasting ones in various parts of the world and stages of civilization various human passions assume successive prominence and become developed to the partial exclusion or deadening of others in savage existence and those states of civilization least removed from it the animal passions predominate in highly cultivated modern society where the complicated machinery of human existence is at once a perpetually renewed cause and effect of certain legal and moral restraints which in the shape of government and public opinion protect the congregated lives and interests of men from the worst outrages of open violence the natural selfishness of mankind assumes a different development and the love of power of pleasure or of pelf exhibits different phenomena from those elicited from a savage under the influence of the same passions the channel in which the energy and activity of modern society inclines more and more to pour itself is the peaceful one of the pursuit of gain this is preeminently the case with the two great commercial nations of the earth england and america 
and in either england or the northern states of america the prudential and practical views of life prevail so far that instances of men sacrificing their money interests at the instigation of rage revenge and hatred will certainly not abound but the southern slaveholders are a very different race of men from either manchester manufacturers or massachusetts merchants they are a remnant of barbarism and feudalism maintaining itself with infinite difficulty and danger by the side of the latest and most powerful development of commercial civilization the inhabitants of baltimore richmond charleston savannah and new orleans whose estates lie like the suburban retreats of our city magnates in the near neighborhood of their respective cities are not now the people i refer to they are softened and enlightened by many influences the action of city life itself where human sympathy and human respect stimulated by neighborhood produce salutary social restraint as well as less salutary social cowardice they travel to the northern states and to europe and europe and the northern states travel to them and in spite of themselves their peculiar conditions receive modifications from foreign intercourse the influence too of commercial enterprise which in these latter days is becoming the agent of civilization all over the earth affects even the uncommercial residents of the southern cities and however cordially they may dislike or despise the mercantile tendencies of atlantic americans or transatlantic englishmen their frequent contact with them breaks down some of the barriers of difference between them and humanizes the slaveholder of the great cities into some relation with the spirit of his own times and country but these men are but a most inconsiderable portion of the slaveholding population of the south a nation for as such they should be spoken of of men whose organization and temperament is that of the southern european living under the influence of a climate at once enervating and exciting scattered over trackless wildernesses of arid sand and pestilential swamp entrenched within their own boundaries surrounded by creatures absolutely subject to their despotic will delivered over by hard necessity to the lowest excitements of drinking gambling and debauchery for sole recreation independent of all opinion ignorant of all progress isolated from all society it is impossible to conceive a more savage existence within the pale of any modern civilization the south carolinian gentry have been fond of styling themselves the chivalry of the south and perhaps might not badly represent in their relations with their dependents the nobility of france before the purifying hurricane of the revolution swept the rights of the suzerain and the wrongs of the serf together into one bloody abyss the planters of the interior of the southern and southwestern states with their furious feuds and slaughterous combats their stabbings and pistolings their gross sensuality brutal ignorance and despotic cruelty resemble the chivalry of france before the horrors of the jacquerie admonished them that there was a limit even to the endurance of slaves with such men as these human life even when it can be bought or sold in the market for so many dollars is but little protected by considerations of interest from the effects of any violent passion there is yet however another aspect of the question which is that it is sometimes clearly not the interest of the owner to prolong the life of his slaves as in the case of inferior or superannuated laborers 
or the very notorious instance in which some of the owners of sugar plantations stated that they found it better worth their while to work off, i.e., kill with labor, a certain proportion of their force, and replace them by new hands every seven years, than work them less severely and maintain them in diminished efficiency for an indefinite length of time. Here you will observe a precise estimate of the planter's material interest led to a result which you argue passion itself can never be so blind as to adopt. This was a deliberate economical calculation, openly avowed some years ago by a number of sugar planters in Louisiana. If, instead of accusing Mrs. Stowe of exaggeration, you had brought the same charge against the author of The White Slave, I should not have been surprised for this book presents some of the most revolting instances of atrocity and crime that the miserable abuse of irresponsible power is capable of producing, and it is by no means written in the spirit of universal humanity which pervades Mrs. Stowe's volumes, but it is not liable to the charge of exaggeration any more than her less disgusting delineation. The scenes described in The White Slave do occur in the slave states of North America and in two of the most appalling incidents of the book, the burning alive of the captured runaway and the hanging without trial of the Vicksburg gamblers, the author of The White Slave has very simply related positive facts of notorious occurrence, to which he might have added, had he seen fit to do so, the instance of a slave who perished in the sea-swamps where he was left bound and naked, a prey to the torture inflicted upon him by the venomous mosquito-swarms. My purpose, however, in addressing you was not to enter into a disquisition on either of these publications, but I am not sorry to take this opportunity of bearing witness to the truth of Mrs. Stowe's admirable book, and I have seen what few Englishmen can see, the working of the system in the midst of it. In reply to your dispassionate observer, who went to the South professedly with the purpose of seeing and judging of the state of things for himself, let me tell you that, Little as he may be disposed to believe it, his testimony is worth less than nothing, for it is morally impossible for any Englishman going into the southern states, except as a resident, to know anything whatever of the real condition of the slave population. This was the case some years ago, as I experienced, and it is now likely to be more the case than ever. For the institution is not yet approved divine to the perceptions of Englishmen and the Southerners are as anxious to hide its uglier features from any note-making observer from this side of the water as to present to his admiration and approval such as can by any possibility be made to wear the most distant approach to comeliness. The gentry of the Southern states are preeminent in their own country for that species of manner which, contrasted with the breeding of the Northerners, would be emphatically pronounced good by Englishmen born to inhabit landed property they are not inevitably made clerks and counting-house men of but inherit with their estates some of the invariable characteristics of an aristocracy the shop is not their element and the eager spirit of speculation and the sordid spirit of gain do not infect their whole existence even to their very demeanour and appearance as they too manifestly do those of a large proportion of the inhabitants of the northern states Good manners have an undue value for Englishmen, generally speaking, and whatever departs from their peculiar standard of breeding is apt to prejudice them, as whatever approaches it prepossesses them far more than is reasonable. 
the southerners are infinitely better-bred men according to english notions than the men of the northern states the habit of command gives them a certain self-possession the enjoyment of leisure a certain ease their temperament is impulsive and enthusiastic and their manners have the grace and spirit which seldom belong to the deportment of a northern people but upon more familiar acquaintance the vices of the social system to which they belong will be found to have infected them with their own peculiar taint and haughty overbearing irritability effeminate indolence reckless extravagance and a union of profligacy and cruelty which is the immediate result of their irresponsible power over their dependents are some of the less pleasing traits which acquaintance develops in a southern character in spite of all this there is no manner of doubt that the candid english observer will for the season of his sojourning among them greatly prefer their intercourse to that of their northern brethren moreover without in the least suspecting it he will be bribed insidiously and incessantly by the extreme desire and endeavor to please and prepossess him which the whole white population of the slave states will exhibit as long as he goes only as a candid observer with a mind not yet made up upon the subject of slavery and open to the conviction as to its virtues every conciliating demonstration of courtesy and hospitable kindness will be extended to him and as i said before if his observation is permitted and it may even appear to be courted it will be to a fairly bound purified edition of the black book of slavery in which though the inherent viciousness of the whole story cannot be suppressed the coarser and more offensive passages will be carefully expunged and now permit me to observe that the remarks of your traveller must derive much of their value from the scene of his inquiry in maryland kentucky and virginia the outward aspect of slavery has ceased to wear its most deplorable features the remaining vitality of the system no longer resides in the interests but in the pride and prejudices of the planters their soil and climate are alike favorable to the labors of a white peasantry the slave cultivation has had time to prove itself there the destructive pest which in time it will prove itself wherever it prevails the vast estates and large fortunes that once maintained and were maintained by the serfdom of hundreds of negroes have dwindled in size and sunk in value till the slaves have become so heavy a burthen on the resources of the exhausted soil and impoverished owners of it that they are made themselves objects of traffic in order to ward off the ruin that their increase would otherwise entail thus the plantations of the northern slave states now present to the traveller very few of the darker and more oppressive peculiarities of the system and provided he does not stray too near the precincts where the negroes are sold or come across gangs of them on their way to georgia louisiana or alabama he may if he is a very superficial observer conclude that the most prosperous slavery is not much worse than the most miserable freedom but of what value will be such conclusions applied to those numerous plantations where no white man ever sets foot without the express permission of the owner not estates lying close to baltimore and charleston or even lexington or savannah but remote and savage wildernesses like legree's estate and uncle tom like all the plantations in the interior of tennessee and alabama like the cotton fields and rice swamps of the great muddy rivers of louisiana and georgia 
like the dreary pine barrens and endless woody wastes of North Carolina. These, especially the islands, are like so many fortresses, approachable for observers only at the owner's will. On most of the rice plantations in these pestilential regions, no white man can pass the night at certain seasons of the year without running the risk of his life, and during the day the master and overseer are as much alone and irresponsible in their dominion over their black cattle as Robinson Crusoe was over his small family of animals on his desert habitation. Who, on such estates as these, shall witness to any act of tyranny or barbarity, however atrocious? No black man's testimony is allowed against a white, and who on the dismal swampy rice-grounds of the savannah or the sugar-breaks of the Mississippi and its tributaries or the up-country cotton-lands of the Akamulgi shall go to perform the task of candid observation and benevolent inquiry. I passed some time on two such estates, plantations where the Negroes esteemed themselves well off, and compared with the slaves on several of the neighboring properties might very well consider themselves so, and I will, with your permission, contrast some of the items of my observation with those of the traveller whose report you find so satisfactory on the subject of the consolations of slavery. And first, for the attachment which he affirms to subsist between the slave and master, I do not deny that certain manifestations on the part of the slave may suggest the idea of such a feeling. But whether upon better examination it will be found to deserve the name, I very much doubt. In the first place, on some of the great southern estates, the owners are habitual absentees, utterly unknown to their serfs, and enjoying the proceeds of their labor in residences as remote as possible from the sands and swamps where their rice and cotton grow, and their slaves bow themselves under the eye of the white overseer and the lash of the black driver. Some of these Sybarites prefer living in Paris, that paradise of American republicans, some in the capitals of the middle states of the Union. Philadelphia or New York. End of section twenty six. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.